Chapter Fifty of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeanne, Washington, D.C. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Fifty in the Cottage. Adam did not ask Dinah to take his arm when they got out into the lane. He had never yet done so often as they had walked together for he had observed that she never walked arm in arm with seth and he thought perhaps that kind of support was not agreeable to her so they walked apart though side by side and the close spoke of her little black bonnet hid her face from him you can't be happy then to make the whole form your home dinah adam said with the quiet interest of a brother who has no anxiety for himself in the matter it's a pity seeing they're so fond of you you know adam my heart is as their heart so far as love for them and care for their welfare goes but they are in no present need their sorrows are healed and i feel that i am called back to my old work in which i found a blessing that i have missed of late in the midst of too abundant worldly good i know it is vain thought to flee from the work that god appoints us for the sake of finding a greater blessing to our own souls as if we could choose for ourselves where we shall find the fullness of the divine presence instead of seeking it where alone it is to be found in loving obedience but now i believe i have a clear showing that my work lies elsewhere at least for a time in the years to come if my aunt's health should fail or she should otherwise need me i shall return you know best dinah said adam i don't believe you'd go against the wishes of them that love you and are akin to you without a good and sufficient reason on your own conscience i've no right to say anything about my being sorry you know well enough what cause i have to put you above every other friend i've got and if it had been ordered so that you could have been my sister and lived with us all our lives i should have counted it a greatest blessing as could happen to us now but seth tells me there is no hope of that your feelings are different and perhaps i'm taking too much upon me to speak about it dinah made no answer and they walked on in silence for some yards till they came to the stone stile where as adam had passed through first and turned round to give her his hand while she mounted the unusually high step she could not prevent him from seeing her face it struck him with surprise for the grey eyes usually so mild and grave had the bright uneasy glance which accompanies suppressed agitation and the slight flush on her cheeks with which she had come downstairs was heightened to a deep rose colour she looked as if she were only sister to dinah adam was silent with surprise and conjecture for some moments and then he said i hope i've not hurt or displeased you by what i've said dinah perhaps i was making too free i've no wish different from what you see to be best and i'm satisfied for you to live thirty mile off if you think it right i shall think of you just as much as i do now for you're bound up with what i can no more help remembering than i can help my heart beating poor adam thus do men blunder dinah made no answer but she presently said have you heard any news from that poor young man since we last spoke of him dinah always called arthur so she had never lost the image of him as she had seen him in the prison yes said adam mr Irving read me a part of a letter from him yesterday it's pretty certain they say that there'll be peace soon though nobody believes it'll last long but he says he doesn't mean to come home he's no heart for it yet and it's better for others that he should keep away mr Irving thinks he's in the right not to come it's a sorrowful letter he asks about you and the poisers as he always does there's one thing in the letter cut me a good deal 
"'You can't think what an old fellow I feel,' he says. "'I make no schemes now. "'I'm the best when I have a good day's march or fighting before me.' "'He's of a rash, warm-hearted nature, like a sow, "'for whom I have always felt great pity,' said Dinah. "'That meeting between the brothers, "'where a sow is so loving and generous, "'and Jacob so timid and distrustful, "'notwithstanding his sense of the divine favor, "'has always touched me greatly.' truly i have been tempted sometimes to say that jacob was of a mean spirit but that is our trial we must learn to see the good in the midst of much that is unlovely ah said adam i like to read about moses best in the old testament he carried a hard business well through and died when other folks were going to reap the fruits a man must have courage to look at his life so and think what'll come of it after he's dead and gone a good solid bit of work less if it's only laying a floor down somebody's the better for it being done well besides the man as does it they were both glad to talk of subjects that were not personal and in this way they went on till they passed the bridge across the willow brook when adam turned around and said ah here seth i thought he'd be home soon does he know of your going dinah yes i told him last sabbath adam remembered now that seth had come home much depressed on sunday evening a circumstance which had been very unusual with him of late, for the happiness he had in seeing Dinah every week seemed long to have outweighed the pain of knowing she would never marry him. This evening he had his habitual air of dreamy benign contentment, until he came quite close to Dinah and saw the traces of tears on her delicate eyelids and eyelashes. He gave one rapid glance at his brother, but Adam was evidently quite outside the current of emotion that had shaken Dinah. He wore his everyday look of unexpected calm. Seth tried not to let Dinah see that he had noticed her face, and only said, I'm thankful you're come, Dinah, for Mother's been hungering after the sight of you all day. She began to talk of you the first thing in the morning. When they entered the cottage, Lisbeth was seated in her armchair, too tired with setting out the evening meal, a task she always performed a long time beforehand, to go and meet them at the door as usual, when she heard the approaching footsteps. Coom, child, thee's coom at last, she said, when Dinah went towards her. What dost mean by laving me a week and ne'er and coming to name me? Dear friend, said Dinah, taking her hand, you're not well. If I'd known it sooner, I'd have come. And how's thee to know if thee dost not come? The lads will know that I tell em. As long as ye can stir hand and foot, the men think ye're hearty. But I'm none so bad, only a bit o' cold sets me achin'. "'and the lads tease me so that somebody with me to do the work. "'They make me ache worse and with talkin'. "'If thee'dst come and say with me, they'd let me alone. "'The poisers canna want thee so bad as I do. "'But take thy bonnet off and let me look at thee.' "'Dinah was moving away, but Lisbeth held her fast, "'while she was taking off her bonnet, "'and looked at her face as one looks into a newly gathered snowdrop "'to renew the old impressions of purity and gentleness.' "'What's the matter with thee?' said Lisbeth, in astonishment. "'Thee's been a-crying.' "'It's only a grief that'll pass away,' said Dinah, who did not wish just now to call forth Lisbeth's remonstrances by disclosing her intention to leave Hayslope. "'You shall know about it shortly. We'll talk of it to-night. I shall stay with you to-night.' Lisbeth was pacified by this prospect, and she had the whole evening to talk with Dinah alone, for there was a new room in the cottage, you remember, built nearly two years ago in the expectation of a new inmate. And here Adam always sat when he had writing to do, or plans to make. 
Seth sat there too this evening, for he knew his mother would like to have Dinah all to herself. There were two pretty pictures on the two sides of the wall in the cottage. On one side there was the broad-shouldered, large-featured, hardy old woman, in her blue jacket and buff kerchief, with her dim-eyed, anxious looks turned continually on the lily face and the slight form in the black dress that were either moving lightly about in helpful activity, or seated close by the old woman's armchair, holding her withered hand, with eyes lifted up towards her to speak a language which Lisbeth understood far better than the Bible or the hymn-book. She would scarcely listen to reading to all to-night. "'Nay, nay, shut the book,' she said. "'We mun talk. I won't know what thee was crying about. Hast got troubles of thy own, like other folks?' On the other side of the wall there were the two brothers so like each other in the midst of their unlikeness. Adam, with nip brows, shaggy hair, and dark, vigorous color, absorbed in his figuring. Seth, with large, rugged features, the close copy of his brother's, but with thin, wavy brown hair and blue, dreamy eyes, as often as not looking vaguely out the window instead of at his book. Although it was a newly bought book, Wesley's abridgment of Madame Guillon's life, which was full of wonder and interest for him. Seth had said to Adam, Can I help thee with anything in here tonight? I don't want to make a noise in the shop. No, lad, Adam answered. There's nothing but what I must do myself. Thee's got thy new book to read and often was Seth with quite unconscious, Adam, as he paused after drawing a line with his ruler, looked at his brother with a kind smile dawning in his eyes. He knew the lad liked to sit full of thoughts he could give no account of. They'd never come to anything, but they made him happy. And in the last year or so, Adam had been getting more and more indulgent to Seth. It was part of that growing tenderness which came from the sorrow at work within him. For Adam, though you see him quite master of himself, working hard and delighting in his work after his inborn inalienable nature, had not outlived his sorrow, had not felt it slip from him as a temporary burden and leave him the same man again. Do any of us? God forbid. It will be a poor result of all our anguish and our wrestling if we want nothing but our old selves at the end of it. If we could return to the same blind loves, the same self-confident blame, the same light thoughts of human suffering, the same frivolous gossip over blighted human lives, the same feeble sense of that unknown, towards which we have sent forth irrepressible cries in our loneliness. Let us rather be thankful that our sorrow lives in us as an indestructible force, only changing its form, as forces do, and passing from pain into sympathy, the one poor word which includes all our best insight and our best love. Not that this transformation of pain into sympathy had completely taken place in Adam yet. There was still a great remnant of pain, and this he felt would subsist as long as her pain was not a memory, but an existing thing, which he must think of as renewed with the light of every new morning. But we get accustomed to mental as well as bodily pain, without for all that losing our sensibility to it. It becomes a habit of our lives, and we cease to imagine a condition of perfect ease as possible for us. Desire is chastened into submission, and we are contented with our day when we have been able to bear our grief in silence and act as if we were not suffering. For it is at such periods that the sense of our lives having visible and invisible relations, beyond any of which either our present or prospective self is the center, grows like a muscle that we are obliged to lean on and exert. That was Adam's state of mind in the second autumn of his sorrow. 
His work, as you know, had always been part of his religion, and from very early days he saw clearly that good carpentry was God's will, was that form of God's will that most immediately concerned him. But now there was no margin of dreams for him beyond this daylight reality, no holiday time in the working-day world, no moment in the distance when duty would take off her iron glove and breastplate and clasp him gently to interest. He conceived no picture of the future but one made up of hard-working days, such as he lived through, with growing contentment and intensity of interest, every fresh week. Love, he thought, could never be anything to him but a living memory, a limb lopped off, but not gone from consciousness. He did not know that the power of loving was all the while gaining new force within him, that the new sensibilities bought by a deep experience were so many new fibres by which it was possible, nay, necessary to him, that his nature should intertwine with another. Yet he was aware that common affection and friendship were more precious to him than they used to be, that he clung more to his mother and Seth, and had an unspeakable satisfaction in the sight or imagination of any small addition to their happiness. The poisers, too, hardly three or four days passed, but he felt the need of seeing them and interchanging words and looks of friendliness with them. He would have felt this probably even if Dinah had not been with them, but he had only said the simplest truth of telling Dinah that he put her above all other friends in the world. Could anything be more natural? For in the darkest moments of memory the thought of her always came as the first ray of returning comfort. The early days of gloom at the hall farm had been gradually turned into soft moonlight by her presence, and in the cottage too, for she had come at every spare moment to soothe and cheer poor Lisbeth, who had been stricken with a fear that subdued even her querulousness at the sight of her darling Adam's grief-worn face. He had become used to watching her light quiet movements, her pretty loving ways to the children, when he went to the hall farm, to listen for her voice as for a recurrent music, to think everything she said and did was just right and could not have been better. In spite of his wisdom, he could not find fault with her for her overindulgence of the children, who had managed to convert Dinah the preacher, before whom a circle of rough men had often trembled a little, into inconvenient household slave, though Dinah herself was rather ashamed of this weakness, and had some inward conflict as to her departure from the precepts of Solomon. Yes, there was one thing that might have been better. She might have loved Seth and consented to marry him. He felt a little vexed for his brother's sake, and he could not help thinking regretfully how Dinah, as Seth's wife, would have made their home as happy as it could be for them all, how she was the one being that would have soothed their mother's last days into peacefulness and rest. It's wonderful she doesn't love the lad, Adams had said sometimes to himself. For anybody you'd think he was just cut out for her, but her heart's so taken up with other things. She's one of those women that feel no drawing towards having a husband and children of their own. She thinks she should be filled up with her own life then. And she's been used so to living in other folks' cares she can't bear the thought of her heart being shut up from them. I see how it is well enough. She's cut out of different stuff from most women. I saw that long ago. She's never easy, but when she's helping somebody, a marriage would interfere with her ways. That's true. I've no right to be contriving and thinking it a bit better if she'd have Seth, as if I was wiser than she is, or than God either, for he made her what she is, and that's one of the greatest blessings I've ever had from his hands, and others beside me. 
The self-reproof had recurred strongly to Adam's mind when he gathered from Dinah's face that he had wounded her by referring to his wish that she had accepted Seth, and so he had endeavored to put into the strongest words his confidence in her decision as right, his resignation even to her going away from them and ceasing to make part of their life otherwise than by living in their thoughts, if that separation were chosen by herself. He felt sure she knew quite well enough how much he cared to see her continually, to talk to her with the silent consciousness of a mutual great remembrance. It was not possible she could hear anything but self-renouncing affection and respect in his assurance that he was contented for her to go away. And yet there remained an uneasy feeling in his mind that he had not said quite the right thing, that somehow Dinah had not understood him. Dinah must have risen a little before the sun the next morning, for she was downstairs about five o'clock. So was Seth, for though Lisbeth's obstinate refusal to have any woman help her in the house, he had learned to make himself, as Adam said, very handy in the housework, that he might save his mother from too great weariness, on which ground I hope you will not think him unmanly, any more than you can have thought the gallant Colonel Bath unmanly when he made the gruel from his invalid sister. Adam, who had sat up late at his writing, was still asleep, and was not likely, Seth said, to be down till breakfast time. Often as Dinah had visited Lisbeth during the last eighteen months, she had never slept in the cottage since that night after Theus's death, when, you remember, Lisbeth praised her deft movements, and even gave her a modified approval to her porridge. But in that long interval Dinah had made great advances in household cleverness, and this morning, since Seth was there to help, she was bent on bringing everything to a pitch of cleanliness and order that would have satisfied her Aunt Poyser. The cottage was far from that standard at present, for Lisbeth's rheumatism had forced her to give up her old habits of dilettante scouring and polishing. When the kitchen was to her mind, Dinah went into the new room, where Adam had been writing the night before, to see what sweeping and dusting were needed there. She opened the window and let in the fresh morning air, and the smell of the sweet briar, and the bright low slanting rays of the early sun, which made a glory about her pale face and pale auburn hair, as she held the long brush, and swept singing to herself in a very low tone, like a sweet summer murmur that you have to listen for very closely, one of Charles Wesley's hymns. Eternal beam of light divine, fountain of unexhausted love, in whom the Father's glory shine, through earth beneath and heaven above. Jesus, the weary wanderer's rest, give me thy easy yoke to bear, with steadfast patience arm my breast, with spotless love and holy fear. Speak to my warring passions, peace, and to my trembling heart be still. Thy power, my strength and fortress is, for all things serve thy sovereign will. She laid by the brush and took up the duster, and if you had ever lived in Mrs. Poyser's household, you would know how the duster behaved in Dinah's hand, how it went into every small corner, and down every ledge in and out of sight, how it went again and again round every bar of the chairs, and every leg, and under and over everything that lay on the table, till it came to Adam's papers and rulers and the open desk near them. Dinah dusted up to the very edge of these, and then hesitated, looking at them with a longing but timid eye. It was painful to see how much dust there was among them. As she was looking in this way, she heard Seth's step just outside the open door, towards which her back was turned, and said, raising her clear treble, 
Seth, is your brother wrathful when his papers are stirred? Yes, very, when they are not put back in the right places, said a deep, strong voice, not Seth's. It was as if Dinah had put her hands unawares on a vibrating cord. She was shaken with an intense thrill, and for the instant felt nothing else. Then she knew her cheeks were glowing, and dared not look round, but stood still, distressed because she could not say good morning in a friendly way. Adam, finding that she did not look round so as to see the smile on his face, was afraid she had thought him serious about his wrathfulness, and went up to her, so that she was obliged to look at him. "'What, you think him a cross fellow at home, Dinah?' he said smilingly. "'Nay,' said Dinah, looking up with timid eyes, "'not so, but you might be put about by finding things meddled with, "'and even the man Moses, the meekest of men, was wrathful sometimes.' "'Come, then,' said Adam, looking at her affectionately. "'I'll help you move the things and put them back again, "'and then they can't get wrong. "'You're getting to be your aunt's own niece, I see, for particularness.' They began their little task together, but Dinah had not recovered herself sufficiently to think of any remark, and Adam looked at her uneasily. Dinah, he thought, had seemed to disapprove him somehow lately. She had not been so kind and open to him as she used to be. He wanted her to look at him, and be as pleased as he was himself with doing this bit of playful work. But Dinah did not look at him. It was easy for her to avoid looking at the tall man and when at last there was no more dusting to be done and no further excuse for him to linger near her, he could bear it no longer, and said, in rather a pleading tone, Dinah, you're not displeased with me for anything, are you? I've not said or done anything to make you think ill of me. The question surprised her and relieved her by giving a new course to her feeling. She looked up at him now, quite earnestly, almost with the tears coming, and said, Oh, no, Adam, how could you think so? "'I couldn't bear you not to feel as much a friend to me as I do to you,' said Adam. "'And you don't know the value I set on the very thought of you, Dinah. "'That was what I meant yesterday, when I said I'd be content for you to go, if you thought right. "'I meant the thought of you was worth so much to me, "'I should feel I ought to be thankful and not grumble, if you see right to go away. "'You know I do mind parting with you, Dinah.' "'Yes, dear friend,' said Dinah, trembling, but trying to speak calmly. I know you have a brother's heart towards me, and we shall often be with one another in spirit, but at this season I am in heaviness through manifold temptations. You must not mark me. I feel called to leave my kindred for a while, but it is a trial. The flesh is weak. Adam saw that it pained her to be obliged to answer. I hurt you by talking about it, Dinah, he said. I'll say no more. Let's see if Seth's ready to put breakfast now. That is a simple scene, reader. But it is almost certain that you, too, have been in love, and perhaps even more than once, though you may not choose to say so to all your feminine friends. If so, you will no more think the slight words, the timid looks, the tremulous touches, by which two human souls approach each other gradually, like two little quivering rain-streams, before they mingle into one. You will no more think these things trivial than you will think the first detected signs of coming spring trivial though they be but a faint indescribable something in the air and in the song of the birds, and the tiniest perceptible budding on the hedgerow branches. Those slight words and looks and touches are part of the soul's language, and the finest language, I believe, is chiefly made up of unimposing words, such as light, sound, stars, music, words really not worth looking at or hearing in themselves any more than chips or sawdust. 
It is only that they happen to be the signs of something unspeakably great and beautiful. I am of opinion that love is a great and beautiful thing, too, and if you agree with me, the smallest signs of it will not be chips and sawdust to you. They will rather be like those little words, light and music, stirring the long-winding fibers of your memory, and enriching your present with your most precious past. End of chapter 50 Recording by Jeanne at Washington, D.C.